If you are new here with us, uh, along with Jake, I want to welcome you. Uh, you. You may have realized already we're in uh, the middle of our Christmas sermon series. Uh, we've chosen to kind of look at a, a big picture story this year. Uh, the Christmas story is one that we find in the beginning of the New Testament. And, and there's a question, actually, that's part of that story, where the wise men come into Jerusalem and they ask King Herod, you know, where is the one who was born King of the Jews? And what we've been doing for this sermon series is, is recognize the fact that, that that question actually was not asked there for the very first time. It was asked all the way back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament is where people uh, began to ask for, even demand for, a king. And so we've been looking at some of the answers to this question, where is the king? Uh, last week, we saw the first answer, which was King Saul. He turned out to be not a very good answer to that question. As a king, uh, he failed miserably. Uh, he was really about building his own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. Uh, he was really interested in, in following his own voice rather than the voice of God. Uh, and so God rejected him as king. Uh, but what we saw is that that was not the end of the king's story. And uh, there was a, a verse there, right when God told Saul, you are no longer going to be king, that he kind of pointed forward to the next king. And uh, so here's that verse, uh, just to kind of set up our time today. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 28. And Samuel said to him, this is to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the one who is better than Saul, and that is King David. So I'd like to pause for a moment of prayer as we start our time together, and then we're going to see what God has for us in terms of the story of King David. So join with me, please. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity again to come together. I thank you, Lord, for those who call Tri-City home, for those who are guests, uh, visitors. Lord, we just, I pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of us uh, during this time. Lord, help us to know you more, uh, to know ourselves more. I thank you, Lord, for the story of Christmas and that, Lord, each year we can come back to it and hear again uh, your love for the people of the world and how, how precisely, uh, precisely you sought to help us uh, by coming and in the form of a child. So Lord, I pray as we, as we look back now to King David and see his role in this, this big story, Lord, that you would instruct us uh, in our faith and help us to know uh, more about this big plan you have. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that is going to be the, the, that is the title of our message, David, a better king. Uh, we are going to spend the last portion of the sermon looking, uh, focusing on 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 22. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. But we're going to fly over really a bunch of the, the story of King David, which kind of goes through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So we'll have the uh, verses on the screen as we go through. Uh, but you know, as I was thinking about this idea of David as a better man than Saul and a better king than Saul, there was a song uh, that, that came to my mind. Uh, if you were sort of a child of the 80s and 90s in particular, you might remember this song. Uh, I was in grade 11, it was 1995, and Pearl Jam was a big band at the time, and they released a song just called Better Man. I remember this because uh, I had taken up drumming and was doing okay at it, and uh, a friend of mine asked to play in a talent show, uh, play this song, Better Man. So I remember practicing it. Uh, I didn't end up playing in the show because it was of the talent portion of it. But anyway, the point was that, that this song always, you know, is in my mind and um, it kind of fits with the, the theme or at least the, the ethos of this idea of Saul, you know, not really working out because in the song, it's kind of this melancholy rock ballad about this woman who's in a really unhealthy relationship, but she feels like there's just no one better out there. And so here's the, here's the chorus. 
I thought I should probably, should I sing? No, I'm not going to sing it. Okay. I can't do any better. So here's, uh, here's what the chorus goes. It says, uh, she lies and says she's in love with him. Can't find a better man. She dreams in color. She dreams in red. Can't find a better man. Can't find a better man. It's kind of this, this mournful refrain. And it strikes me that that is kind of probably would have been the mood of Israel at the time when Saul failed. Because he was really the best, they thought, that Israel had to offer. Uh, when he was anointed king, Samuel, who was skeptical about the whole thing, he said of Saul, look, th- this is, there's no one like him in Israel. He, he was tall, he was, he was handsome, he, you looked at him and you, you had confidence in your nation because he was leading you. And so when he failed miserably and kind of all fell apart, you could imagine the people thinking, well, what, I mean, we can't find anyone better than Saul. What, what are we going to do? See, what they didn't realize, of course, was that Saul was not the end of God's plan for a king. He was just barely the beginning. In fact, God had a a bigger plan, and the next part of it was a better man and a better king, who is King David. And so we're going to look at King David uh, sort of in two parts. First, this idea of him being a better man, and then we're going to look at how he fits into God's better plan, which goes far beyond David. But firstly, let's look at David himself especially in contrast to Saul. If you've been with us before, you'll see definitely some contrast. So three things about King David that made him better than King Saul. Uh, number one, we see right away that David uh, was ordinary. Uh, Saul was not ordinary. Uh, people were very excited about Saul because he was extraordinary. He was the tallest in the land. He was the most handsome, chiseled features. Uh, but with David, uh, it was n- not so much the case. In fact, when Samuel goes to look for this next king, God says, go, I'm going to anoint the next king. Go to uh, Jesse's household. There's 12 sons there. Samuel goes in. He automatically goes to the biggest and the strongest, right? He thinks, if we're going to pick a new king. It's going it's to be like Saul. We've got to have someone that at least looks like a king. So here's what happens. Here's 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7. When they came, he, this is a Samuel, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, when people saw David, they did, they were, confidence was not in their heart. I mean, it says that David was handsome, but he was kind of like boyishly handsome. He was small. He was the runt of the litter, the youngest. No one looked at him and thought, I want to follow him into battle. He was an ordinary kid. But his ordinariness was, was what made him better. See, to be extraordinary is what all of us tend to want, especially in our culture, right? From a young age, our kids are told they are extraordinary, right? When the baby rolls over, the parents are like, have you ever seen a baby roll over this way? They're clearly gifted. I don't know, sign them quickly. Get in the program, honey. We need to get them on the wait list because no one has rolled over ever so Kids, by the time they're in elementary school, they think they're all special and unique and fantastic and amazing. We all feel that way, right? Of course, we're, we have something special to offer the world. That's what we've been told since we were very, very young. If you question whether this is in the water of our culture, I want to read to you, um, this is kind of a, kind of a spoof letter that this uh, Swedish author wrote uh, a number of years ago. His name was Robert Was- uh, Walser. And uh, he wrote this as if it's a cover letter for a job. Just ask yourself if you would ever write this if you were applying for a job. Here's what he writes. He says, esteemed gentlemen, I am a poor, young, unemployed person. Large and difficult tasks I cannot perform. 
and obligations of a far-ranging sort are too strenuous for my mind. I'm not particularly clever, and first and foremost, I do not like us to strain my intelligence over much. I am a dreamer rather than a thinker, a zero rather than a force, dim rather than sharp. The passion to go far in the world is unknown to me. If you were like a manager and you got that job application there, you would be like, who writes this? No one writes this kind of thing for, to, to, to apply for a job. Even if it's true, right, we wouldn't write that. We would try to accentuate the good parts of our personality, right? We would try to toot our own horn in as humble a way as possible. That's, that's the normal way to go about it. But what I want you to see is the way that he ends the letter. Because I think it gives us some insight into this whole sense of being extraordinary. He says, well, well, now you know what sort of a person I am. I am sincere and honest. And I'm aware that this signifies precious little in the world in which we live. So I shall be waiting, esteemed gentleman, your respectful servant, positively drowning in obedience. <laughs> so you notice the way that he pokes fun at kind of the, the emphasis we place on being special. But I also like the way that he makes this connection between uh, being sincere and being a good servant, right? being faithful. The sense you get from the letter, really, the heart of it is, look, I'm, I'm not the sharpest tool in the drawer, but I will be sincere. I will be honest. I will serve faithfully. And that is the heart that you see in David, especially at the beginning. Because he is just an ordinary kid, the opportunities that come about for him to serve, he enters into them gladly and willingly. Even after he's anointed king, right? He's anointed king, and then there's this time where he's I mean, he's not king yet, and yet there's a call for him to go and serve Saul, who is the king. Now, Saul had been told, the kingdom is not for you anymore. Saul hasn't really grasped that yet, so he's still holding on to power, still acting as king. And he needs someone to come and play for him, uh, play the harp to soothe him. He's a very troubled mind. And uh, David serves willingly. They ask David to come, and look at what it says. This is still in 1 Samuel 16. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. See, the thing with David is you, you, don't, you don't have any sense of, of duplicitness. Dupli- you know what I mean. Deceit. It's easier. You don't have any sense of resentment or bitterness. He just wants to serve. Even though God had told him, Look, you are going to be the next king, um, he's happy to serve the present king, even if it's a false king. There's the sense of him being ordinary and content to simply serve in, in wherever is needed. See, this is something that should weigh on our hearts, I think, because, because for the most part, we have trouble not being extraordinary. I mean, just ask yourself how content you would be with ordinary sincerity. Like, is there some, something in you that you, you need accolades? You need to be thought of as the, the smartest in the room? You, you love having the best ideas? Is there not some part of you that really misses it if someone, you know, someone doesn't pay attention, someone doesn't say how wonderful you are or something you've done? The thing about clamoring to be extraordinary and special, the problem with it is, is that it tends to overshadow the greatness of what God is doing in our life. That's, that's what we see with Saul. Saul was very intent on making sure that everyone knew how great he was, and in so doing, the greatness of God was, was greatly overshadowed. But with David, David, his, his ordinariness meant that the extraordinariness of God was put on full display. 
people were able to see God work in him and to see the, the, the glory and power of God in a way that they certainly were not able to with Saul. And this really is the life of everyone who seeks to follow the Lord. This is the Christian life, where, where our intention should be that we want the emphasis to be placed on who God is and what he is doing. If you want an image of this, something just to kind of wrap your mind around, uh, something, something came to my mind. I remembered watching a cooking show. Uh, Don and I love to watch cooking shows. And there was one on like barbecue, you know, uh, authentic barbecue. And I remember the host asking the, the barbecue chef, uh, they said, look, every time I go to get a pulled pork sandwich, you know, a great classic pulled pork barbecue sandwich, uh, the bun is always so plain. They said, every, every barbecue joint I go into, it's always served in this like plain white bun, like bought from Walmart. Like, what's the deal with that? There's, there's so much energy and effort put into the meat, but you, you do nothing with the bun. And the barbecue, you know, the cook said, well, that's because the bun is not the point. He said, if you come out of a barbecue joint and you're thinking about the bun, you have not had good barbecue. <laughs> right? The meat is the point. The bun is supposed to fade into the background. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's us, right? As the church, we are the bun. We are supposed to fade into the background, right? Everyone is supposed to be caught up in, excited about who God is and what he's doing. David, David was clearly the bun, right? At least in the beginning part of his reign, right? He was just happy to serve. He wasn't looking for limelight or glory, even after God had anointed him as king. We should note that that made him a better man, that he was a man of God's own heart because he was content with being ordinary and allowing the, the extraordinaries of God to shine through. Now, the second thing we see about David is kind of tied into this. The second thing is that David was shaped in obscurity. He, he was formed and he grew out of the spotlight. See, if you read through 1 Samuel, what becomes really clear is that David is anointed king and then there's this big gap where nothing happens and then he's proclaimed king. Like years go by. No celebration has happened. No one's coming to David to ask many questions. In fact, after the anointing, everyone just kind of looks around and says, uh, well, I guess we should, should we just go home? Everyone, okay, I guess we'll go home. And that's what happens. David goes home with his father and his father says, uh, David, there's still sheep that need to be taken care of. So why don't you go tend the sheep and we'll wait to see what happens next. And they wait for a while. David was tending the sheep. Look what it says in uh, 16.1. When Saul asked for him to come, it says, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Uh, David was tending the sheep after he was anointed king, not just for weeks or months, but for years. Just think about that for a moment. Think about the emotional roller coaster ride of being told sort of out of the blue, hey, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And then years going by and nothing happening. You can imagine David at first being pretty excited, right? He's out, he's fine helping the sheep, right? Something big is going to happen next. It must, must be. But after a while, he would start to wonder, man, maybe I, like, did I imagine it? Did something go wrong? Like, did, did God forget about me out here in the hinterlands of Israel looking after these sheep? And the answer was no. No, God hadn't forgotten him. In fact, he was exactly where God wanted him to be. God intentionally left David in the pasture to grow his character. And there's a big contrast with Saul. See, Saul, he was proclaimed king, and then, sorry, anointed king, proclaimed king, and then he led his people into, into battle like that same afternoon. So this somewhat humble young man that we have a glimmer of at the beginning of Saul's story, very quickly, he grows in pride and arrogance, and it's his downfall. But see, with David, it's very, very different. 
God left him and allowed him to grow in godly character. And he grew in some other ways too. You can imagine that there out in the pastures watching after the sheep, I mean, his slingshot game, it got really good, right? Had to. He was practicing all the time. So when Goliath comes around, he knows what, he, what he's doing. Also, he had opportunities to exercise his courage and his bravery. Uh, listen to what David says to Saul when he's saying, look, let me go and fight Goliath. He says this in chapter 17. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. So that was, those were formative experiences for David. Because he was out there fighting lions, when it came time for Goliath, he said, I, I know what I'm capable of and I know that God will be with me. He grew in godly character. But most importantly, uh, he must have learned humility. Because after a year of waiting, it would be very, very clear that this whole king thing was not up to David. He, was, he wasn't the one who was able to install himself as king. I mean, he was anointed by God's choosing, but to actually be king, if David had tried to go and make that happen, he had no following, he had no strength, no power. Saul would just kill him. If he tried to step into the throne and say, by the way, I'm the next one, it would all be done. David had to learn that if this was going to happen, he had to wait on God and trust God for his timing. In fact, you could say that what David really learned in the pasture was what it meant to be a sheep and what it meant to see God as his shepherd. In fact, this is what he writes in his most famous psalm, right? Psalm 23. He writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So David's time of waiting really did help to make him a better man, which made him a better king. Which should be, I think, maybe convicting for us. Because my sense of it is that, for the most part, we resent times of waiting. Don't we? It's not many times that we're, we're in a season of waiting where something's not happened that we're happy about it. For the most part, we feel like the whole plan is gone awry and that something needs to be fixed. We're saying, Lord, how, have you forgotten about me? How, and very often, we try to make things happen on our own. We fail to see that it's, it's very often times of waiting in obscurity where no one's watching us that God is doing some of his best work. And very often we are called to those seasons as human beings. I think of how many, how many women have stepped back from their, uh, their jobs, good jobs, cut back on their hours so they can serve the family. Is there anything more obscure and less validating than being at home with young kids? All they do is complain. No one celebrates your, your cooking or your dinners. In fact, it's usually criticism. That's not how I want my toast toasted. It's not the level of brownness I want it, mom. It's, it's hard to have a real sense that God is at work. Very often, moms feel like, like is, is there anything good going on here? We often feel that way when, when our lives are put on hold uh, because we're caring for a dependent family member, right? Wasn't our plan, wasn't our time, and yet someone is ill, someone's getting elderly, and we have to totally switch up our plans. And we're serving out of the limelight. And we're very often tempted to believe, look, well, then that means God's blessing is on hold. It means nothing's happening here. I just have to endure it. We get hard-hearted or bitter. It can happen in jobs 
that are unfulfilling, but we're just doing them because we know that right now the family needs to be provided for us. So many times in our lives where we are in a place and we think, man, this is, nothing is happening here, Lord. There's so many things that I want to have happen. And, and what are you doing about it? Why has it been months and years? And yet when we turn our attention to the pages of scripture, what we see is this, this does tend to be God's pattern. It does tend to be the case that we grow in faithfulness. We grow in maturity in those times when our faith is tested, when we have to simply wait on the Lord for the next chapter of our lives to open. What, what we see here in David is that it's in the time of waiting is where we can draw near to the Lord to prepare us for things to come. That's what that was happening with him. We actually see the same thing in the life of Jesus, if you think about it, right? The first major portion of his life was spent without anyone paying attention to him, right? 30 years or so, right? He was in, we got a little bit at the beginning part of the Christmas story, but then he's out of the limelight. He's serving as a carpenter. It's not till the age of 30, just three years of ministry. This is a pattern of godliness for God's people. And for us to, in fact, be better men, better women that are closer to the Lord, we should embrace these times. That's what God is calling us to, and we see this in David. Now, the other thing we see in David is that after those times of kind of waiting and, and a time of people not knowing who he is, there, are, there is a season where God brings him into the limelight, where he's proclaimed king. There's a lot of back and forth with Saul, but then he leads his people into victory after victory. There's peace in the land. But the third thing we see from David is, is kind of the hardest to swallow, really, from what a great man he is. And that is that, that David truly repented. See, let me ask you a question. Um, what was David's wife's name? See, if I say uh, Adam, there's Eve, right? Uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, with David, you would probably say David and Bathsheba, right? But that was not his first wife. That was the woman that he had an affair with, that he took advantage of. It, it says something about David, that the woman that we most closely associate with him was, was a, uh, his sin. It tells us that David was a better man and a better king, but he was not a perfect king, right? There was a season of great valor and victory and humility from David, but unfortunately, he also allowed the same sin that took over Saul's heart to, to seep into his heart, which was pride and arrogance and, and lustfulness, obviously. The thing, though, about David that sets him apart and still makes him a better king is that in that sin, he, he truly repented. Last week, we saw that Saul, he superficially repented. He didn't really get it. He never really turned, never really changed. But with David, we see a real, a real fear in his soul, a real recognition that he has disobeyed the voice of God. And we see it in his second most famous psalm, Psalm 51, where he says this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, David is the biblical poster child for repentance, and that says something about God and his people. That the greatest king they ever had was one who, yes, sinned, but in that sin still led his people to life, to hope, to forgiveness in the Lord. This is something that we need to take to heart as a people, those who follow the Lord, a humanity in general, that when it comes to sin, the only way to find true life and true hope and healing is through confession, is through repentance, is through trusting that God will forgive us. Back then, he didn't know exactly how. Now we know it's because of the work of Jesus on the cross. 
But see, David was a better king because in the end, even in his sin, he led people to life rather than death. The thing is, that still was a big problem. I mean, yes, he found forgiveness. Yes, there was healing. But really what this did in terms of the narrative of this king that the people are waiting for is it reminded everyone, look, um, this, this king, this wonderful, humble king, he's, he's going to let us down. And you would think that by this point, the people would say, okay, the first king was a train wreck from the beginning. The second king was good for a while, but then he failed also. Maybe we should just forget this whole king thing, right? Maybe by this point, we're just not meant to have a king. But in fact, what we see is that God had something much more significant in mind. And it wasn't just that Saul and David were kind of placeholders waiting for the better plan to take place. God was already working out this better plan through the life of David. The people were interested in a king here and now. God was interested in an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. So we're going to turn the corner now and look not just at David, the better man, but we're going to look at the better plan that God was unrolling through the life of David himself. And it really all comes down to a a promise. See, God made a promise to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. A covenant is a, a kind of promise that cannot be broken. And we see this uh, early on in David's reign. This is before his fall into sin, but it's a promise that endures forever. Uh, David, just to set the scene, because we're going to slow down a little bit here, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is young. He's he's had success. God has given him peace and victory against all their enemies. He's had time to build a palace for himself. And he's sitting on the porch of the palace with Nathan the prophet, and they're looking over kind of the land, And David notices the tabernacle, which is the tent where God would come to meet with his people, kind of their church building at the time. And look at what happens. So this is verse uh, 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David's basically saying, I think we should build something for for God, right? We should build a temple, we should build something. And Nathan says, that sounds like a great idea. Neither of them think to ask God about it because it's obviously a great idea, right? Why would we ask? Let's go build whatever's in your heart, David, do it. That night, uh, God speaks to Nathan and says, uh, actually, I've got some other plans. In fact, he gives a message to David. Here's what he says. Uh, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? He goes on a bit, but that first line really kind of encapsulates the tone here. God basically comes to David and says, hang on a second, you think I need you to build me a house? You think you know something about establishing a permanent presence for me in the midst of my people? David, let me tell you something about permanence. I am going to build you a house, and that house is going to endure forever. And then God goes on to proclaim this promise, this covenant through David, not just God's people, but the people of the world will be blessed. So we're going to look at this. This is kind of the middle chunk, uh, this this prophetic uh, word. And you're going to notice in there that there's a talk about David's son, his offspring. And really there's two layers here. One is about Solomon, his son that is going to come immediately. The other one is about Jesus. So here's the promise. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from you from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you notice there, there's some of those lines that uh, can only really apply to David's immediate son, to Solomon. For example, Solomon is the one who builds a temple for the Lord, and Solomon is the one who, who falls into iniquity and sin. But there's another layer there that are things that can't be true of Solomon. For example, only Jesus could be God's son. Only Jesus could never forsake his father. Only Jesus will have a secure house and kingdom and throne that will be established forever. What this shows us is that the better plan that God had was that there would be, in fact, a better king. The the king who is named Jesus. The king who is above all kings. And David's response to this is he's kind of flabbergasted. And he just, he worships the Lord. Look at what he says in verses 18 and 19. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So you notice there, David recognizes this is, this is a big deal. This is not just a promise to him and his family. This is for all humankind that God has on that day said that I am going to establish a kingdom that will never fail. It will come through your offspring, David, but it will be, it will be a kingdom that will endure forever. Now, I think it's tough for us to really be excited about this because, well, for one thing, we've never really had a king, right? It's hard for us to put ourselves in a place where we'd be really excited about a perfect king when we haven't really had any good or bad kings. We have a queen, right, Queen Elizabeth, and I think we got to say, in terms of all world leaders, she's one of the best, right? She's a great queen. She's dignified. She's noble, right? You never have any scandals with the queen. Her family's another story, but we're not talking about that. The queen is great. Now, the thing of it is that we don't, it's still hard for us to, to see a material and immediate blessing from the queen in our lives. Uh, I was reminded of this the other day. Uh, Jeff Buckham uh, is a pastor of Northview Community Church that we're connected with. And uh, he recently, like a couple weeks ago, became a Canadian citizen, him and his family. And he was kind of uh, giving us, the Canadians in the room, a hard time because part of the, you know, to become a citizen, you pledge allegiance to the queen. And he was like, why am I pledging allegiance to the queen? Like what, honestly, he said to us, do you, do you support everything that the queen does and says? Is that kind of how we function? So, of course, I challenged him to a duel at 20 paces with a pistol. He can't talk about our queen that way. But I get what he was saying, right? What he's saying is, look, we have a queen, but she's more of a figurehead. There's not a real sense in which we have this sense of real allegiance to her. But for the people back then, the monarch, the king, meant something real and tangible in their lives. There's a real sense of security and hope and identity that came because of King David. See, in Israel at the time, there were, there were enemies, you know, on the outskirts of the city. Uh, you know, the next nation over, if they had the chance, they would come and kill them. 
the fact that they had a king who could lead them into battle, there was a real sense of security. They would look at David, they would have a sense of, man, I'm safe because he's there. He's gonna lead our people, our armies into battle. The king represented also real provision, right? The economy of Israel was there because the king was making decisions that everyone would be well cared for, they'd have enough food and water. There's a real sense in which the people could be settled and feel provided for because of the king. The king also provided a sense of identity, right? The victories in battle, the honor for Israel, all of that, the people latched onto that. It gave them a sense of who they were. These were real and tangible benefits. So, so the idea that there would be a king like David, but forever, their hearts would have been filled with wonder, like filled with joy and anticipation. Like, like man, that would forever, like we would never have to worry. The king would never fail. The king would never fail us. It would have been mind-blowing and so encouraging. Let me put it another way. Imagine, imagine if when the people demanded a king, so way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, they said to God, we want a king. And God said, okay, you're going to have a king. And right then and there, he proclaimed this covenant. You will one day have a perfect king who will never fail you, will always be there for you. His kingdom will last forever. Would that have been any less true? No. No, God was going to do it. He said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Would, would it have been any less real? No, it was still really going to happen. But would it have had less impact on their hearts? I think so. See, the value of, of David and even Saul is that the people had a tangible experience with a king, especially with David, of a righteous king. A king who really did fulfill some of their needs they're longing for security and hope and identity. And the fact that they experienced that in a small way, it, it whet their appetite for the king to come. It meant that for the next number of centuries, as God's people were waiting, they could look back and say, we want a king like David. Except we want a king that's gonna last. That's not gonna fall into sin. That's gonna rule and reign forever. And when the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of it was all the, the more sweeter because of that first taste. So for wanting to know King David's place in, in this, this answer, this bigger answer to the question of where is the king, we need to understand his function in terms of the bigger plan. Yes, yes, he was a better man than Saul. Yes, he was a better king. Yes, he ruled well for a time in that you know, place and but ultimately, he served as a signpost. As a, I, think, I think the perfect image is really as an appetizer of the thing to come. Now, an appetizer, if you know appetizers like I do, they really whet your appetite, right? That's why they're called an appetizer. They kindle an appetite for the meal to come, right? Go with me for a moment. There are some times when you're hungry, right? You get home, there's a little bit of time until dinner, you just grab anything, right? doesn't matter what it is, apple, Carrot stick, nuts, or whatever. You just, you just got to fill your belly or else you get hangry. No, everyone's going to be unhappy. You just got to fill your belly. That's not an appetizer. A true appetizer, when you're sitting at a nice meal, is something that is delicious in of itself, but does not fully satisfy, right? Case in point. The other week, uh, Don says to me, hey, can you try this? I'm trying out an appetizer for Christmas Eve dinner. I was like, happy to, happy to serve, whatever I can do. So... <laughs> She put this uh, phyllo pastry thing with this uh, brie and whole cranberries and granulated sugar on it. And she put it there and gave it to me. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Let's just have this for the whole meal. This is all we need. Was partly what I thought. But the other part of me realized, my sober sense, was like, I can't just eat 12, you know, brie appetizers. That's not going to be good for my stomach. That's the thing about appetizers. They're delicious and wonderful, but they don't fully satisfy. What they do 
is they whet your appetite for the meal. And in fact, that's what happened in that moment. I was like, oh man, I can't wait for Christmas Eve dinner. I can't wait to sit down and eat this and then whatever else is to come. Do you see, that's what, that's what God is doing for his people. Do you see that he's wanting to foster within his people an anticipation of the true and better king, King Jesus? Because all the things that David does in small portion, the security, the hope, the provision, Jesus does eternally. Because Jesus was the, the king who came to deal with all of those things that threaten our hope and security and joy. And he dealt with them forever. He didn't just come to establish a kingdom on earth. He first came to serve us by dying for us. He was the king and the savior. Which means that because of his death and his resurrection, we have a hope that is eternal. That, that, that's the linchpin that made it happen. That's, that's the thing that fully satisfies, that when we sink our teeth into the gospel, we taste that which is truly satisfying because it's satisfying forever. It wasn't just another great king and a long line of kings. We always have to wait for the next one. He was the eternal king. He is the eternal king. And the, the joy of the story, the joy of God's unfolding plan is that he was, he was anticipating it. He was telling the story slowly so that God's people, when Jesus finally came, there would be a fulfillment that would be so satisfying because we've experienced the kings that don't satisfy. And for us, even though, even though we don't really have a king, uh, we know a little bit about not being satisfied with the things in this life. We know a little bit about longing for an eternal hope and security. To end our time, I want to read to you David's response to all this. Right? This, this covenant, this blessing, his promise is, is laid on him. And here's how he responds. This is verse 20 of chapter 7. David says, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. I mean, David just, he just worships the Lord. He, he says, Lord, all glory should be given to you for what you are doing. I, I'm speechless. His response at knowing, and, and remember, he doesn't even know how it's all going to play out. Just the promise is enough for David to say, Lord, there's none like you. There is nowhere better that your people can look for hope and security and joy than to you and your promises to your people. And we have the joy of knowing those promises, he kept them. That Jesus did come. That's the story that we're, we're slowly making our way through. Next week, we're going to look into the Psalms and see the writing of God's people anticipating the coming king. And then finally, Christmas Eve, we're going to journey with the Magi. They come and they, they find the child who is actually born king of the Jews. My hope for us this Christmas is that as we hear this story, that we, even though we know the end, that we enter into this time of anticipation, that, that, that our appetites are wet. That we are excited for the coming of the king and that when we fill our minds and our hearts anew with his coming, with the meaning of his coming, with the fullness of his kingdom, that, that we would be truly satisfied. So let me pray that for us and then we'll spend some time in worship. Uh, Lord Jesus, I do pray. I do pray that our hearts would be fully satisfied in you. I do thank you for, for just the, the glory of the story Lord Jesus, Lord God, that you, you didn't just write a short story when it came to the Christmas story, when it came to the gospel. This was, a, this was an, a, an epic series. 
of you beginning way back in the history of your people, anticipating the coming king, recognizing the need that we each have for that security and hope that a king could bring to the people back then and that we still need today. Lord, I just pray for each one here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to truly know you as Savior and Lord, especially in those seasons of, of waiting, especially in those seasons where we feel kind of ordinary or forgotten and we wonder, Lord, if we're even doing anything. Lord, may you remind us of your gracious and powerful work as we see it in the life of King David, as we see it in the the giving of your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and in those times of, of waiting, we would draw near to you. You would build us up in faithfulness. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.